This week, Jennifer Ward-Leland lends some star power to New Zealand tearjerker Vermillion. Tell me something about yourself, Darcy. I'm seeing different colours with different notes. It's all changing. The girl in the spider's web sees the crown's Claire Foy, no less, take on Lisbeth Salander. Attract all of his ex-associates. Every single one leads back to one place. Home. And War Story Journey's End. Depressingly, 90 years on, it hasn't dated much. They all feel like we do. But they stick at it. It's the only thing a decent man can do. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. One thing a number of critics have noticed this year is the increasing number of women-directed and women-led films to gross our cinemas. This isn't just a good thing morally, of course. The greater the variety of filmmakers, the more interesting the stories, you'd think. And who doesn't want that? Well, one thing that hasn't been mentioned quite as much is that they've mostly not been particularly good. This is no ghost story. It chilled me to the bone. You must get your story published, Mary. Curious subject matter for a young lady. Are you suggesting the work belongs to Mr Shelley? It is my story. No offence to directors like Haifa Al-Mansur, but Mary Shelley wasn't a patch on her debut, the little Saudi miracle Wajda. A Wrinkle in Time was a waste of Ava DuVernay's talent for realism, and many other films left you hungry for bigger films by better filmmakers. Is your dad in the service? Yours. Do you feel safe living with your dad? We didn't need to be rescued. Your dad needs to provide you shelter and a place to live. He did. It's often a long time between drinks for top directors like Deborah Granick there, Lona Scherfig, Sally Potter, Lynn Ramsey, not to mention Nikki Caro and Jane Campion. One of my favourites, the great Nicole Holofchenko, has mostly stopped making films entirely and switched to television. Her last feature film, Enough Said, was over five years ago. Remember that new client of mine? Well, it turns out she is Albert's ex-wife. Stop seeing her, please. I don't have anybody I can bitch to. You can completely bitch to me. It was very clumsy and bad. So, good news and bad news, I suppose. But my point is that it's not enough to simply get women to make films about women. The answer to the question, what's your film about, shouldn't be, it's about women and female energy. I mean, I'm pleased it's there, of course, but could a film like the New Zealand-made Vermillion be a little more specific? Dangerous, Darcy. I've lost my power. I used to be dangerous. Would you automatically go and see a film that was promoted as an exploration of male issues and male energy? Though, ironically, that's not a bad description of a recent film adaptation of R.C. Sheriff's classic 1928 play about war, Journey's End. I can't stick it any longer. <laughs> you think there's no limit to what a man can bear? I'm sorry if I annoyed you by joining this company. It's time. Mind you, a play doesn't survive 90 years unless there's a little more to it than Men Under Fire. 
And equally, a women-led film needs a better reason to see it than just there ought to be more women-led films. Like a good plot, for instance. Certainly the new Lisbeth Salander thriller seems to have story in spades. Who the hell are you? I'm a fan of yours. 20 minutes into The Girl and the Spider's Web, we had sadists torturing and being tortured, governments being hacked into, cunning phone and computer work with backstories thrown in for good measure. So why did I keep nodding off? It certainly wasn't for lack of strong female energy. You bitch! You try to contact your wife again, or if anything unexpected should happen to her, this video will be sent to him. The appeal of the original Girl and the Dragon Tattoo was the odd couple pairing of noble but dull journalist Mikhail and psychopunk hacker Lisbeth. Take one out of the picture, in this case Mikhail barely gets a look in, and the film ceases to matter. Story on its own isn't enough. Who's it happening to? And in a way, that was my problem with Vermilion. I would like to propose a toast. Zoe and The good news about Vermilion is it looks several million bucks, thanks to director Daughter Sheffman and I believe a mostly female crew. This is an important point since the cast too is about 80% female, led by the always very watchable Jennifer Ward Leland. Jennifer plays Darcy, who I think is a musician. Sorry to be so vague, but nobody in Vermilion seems to work for a living. Anyway, we open on Darcy singing an old Hunters and Collectors number in a pub as a sort of guest spot. Cut to her extremely nice home. Clearly the cover version business is rather better paid than it used to be. Tell me something about yourself, Darcy. I'm seeing different colours with different notes. It's all changing. The initial gimmick is that Darcy has a special gift. She sees colours when she plays the piano. But now the colours are changing. Well, it seems a rather fancy way of saying Darcy's ill. In fact, despite the title, the I see colours thing doesn't make much more of an appearance in Vermilion than an occasional dream sequence. Instead, we switch to Darcy's relationship problems. The guy basically confirmed the diagnosis. Been thinking about people. Turns out I haven't loved that many. Well, nothing wrong with this as an idea, but Darcy doesn't seem to have any problems with her relationships. She's beating off boyfriends with a stick. Her many female friends and their many female children seem to love coming over to chat. And her daughter Zoe is no more prickly than most daughters with their mothers. What have you been doing to Zoe? to annoy her, it just happens. Darcy! Sorry. Frank and I are getting married. Yeah. Why? Aside from Darcy's illness, the other big plot point is Zoe and her long-time boyfriend Frank have decided to get married. Darcy is horrified. Why Darcy is horrified is a mystery, as is the fact that Darcy's best friends seem to spend most of their time at Darcy's nice home complaining that Darcy doesn't talk to them. Yes, she does. Everyone talks to everyone here. I've never seen a more civilised household. I used to love being in here when I was a kid. 
can't remember that. It's because you're away, so Sila let me make it my room. By now, so little was happening that I started missing the stuff about Darcy seeing colours when she played the piano. It's not exactly plot as such, but it's better than people not working and being nice to each other. Please don't shut me out. I can't bear it. I don't want to be nasty to something as well-meaning as Vermillion, but it's a good example of what's often wrong with so many New Zealand feature films. Not enough plot, no conflict with characters that no-one wants to offend. It's an impossible puzzle, Zoe and I. We just need to learn to talk to each other a little better. I couldn't help contrasting it with a film like Nicole Holofchainer's Lovely and Amazing, another female-driven story of families and illness. Nicole gleefully makes her characters noisy, stupid, irritating and unreasonable, knowing that actors like Catherine Keener, Emily Mortimer and Brenda Blethyn would make us love them anyway. You were supposed to contribute once Maddie went to school. I'm trying to sell my art, Bill. Maybe you should just get a job. You know, a job, job. I'd like to apply for the job. What do you do? I'm an artist. Aren't you going to give me a smile or something? You're hired. Thanks. In Vermillion, despite the best efforts of Jennifer Ward-Leland, Teresa Healy and the rest of a pretty good cast, there's nothing to have an opinion about one way or the other. I'm sorry Darcy's sick, I hope Zoe's wedding goes off all right, but not enough to keep me up at night. I concede this is a film with plenty of potential female energy, but I'm afraid it's energy with not enough to do, all dressed up and nowhere to go. I just want to need to think. All the people I love need me. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo novels by Stig Larsson were a phenomenon that went on to launch an entire genre of novels, TV series and films, Scandi Noir. As the name suggests, they involve pitch-black plots set in the frozen north with another feature of 1940s film noir, strong female characters. Many of them boast equally strong male and female leads. Someone set me up. I need your help. What's that? That's what I want to know. The Larson books were called the Millennium Novels after the magazine where Mikhail Blomqvist works as a crusading journalist. Mikhail investigates corruption, political and personal, and enlists the aid of an angry punk hacker called Lisbeth Salander. Lisbeth has a thing about violence against women. She doesn't like it. The CEO who beat up two prostitutes but then got acquitted in court yesterday. Let's get me down. I'm transferring 20% of your cash to these two girls. The rest I'm transferring to your wife. When Stig Larsson died, the pen for the Elizabeth Salander stories was handed to another writer who decided that Elizabeth was by far the most interesting character in the books, which is true, and the story would benefit from concentrating on her, which isn't. Are you not Elizabeth Salander? The girl with the dragon tattoo. The girl who hurts men, who hurt women. 
So instead of the intriguing and unpredictable Lisbeth of the first three books, the girl in the spider's web now has a rather blank slate who carries out elaborate vigilante feats despite no obvious source of income. Oh no, she's turned into the equaliser. Account number. Don't! I have one line, one, two. Take your child and leave. He won't hurt you again. This is despite being played by the supremely talented Claire Foy, who gives Lisbeth Salander as much depth as you can when your character is basically defined by beating up billionaires and being blown up regularly. You have a sister? No. She killed herself three years ago. I can't believe you didn't tell me. That I had a sister or that she killed herself? Both. She's given a nameless girlfriend who's mostly there to tease out a few more details about her terrible upbringing. You may remember Lisbeth was regularly abused by a psychotic father, now dead. You may not know, because they've only just made it up, that she shared this abuse with a twin sister, Camilla. When our loved ones die, we tell our friends. We have to go now, I need to work. If you have another girl coming, you can tell me. I have to work. Yes, back to work for Lisbeth. She gets a job working for a disillusioned scientist played by Stephen Merchant, who's made a magical gizmo that unscrupulous companies plan to use for evil. Please help us, Lisbeth. You're our only hope. I've been told you're the only person who can pull this off. That depends. What am I looking for? I realised too late that I'd created an abomination. Anyone want me to steal it for you? Please, help me. So, Lisbeth hacks into the dark web, plucks passwords out of the air, burns off cell phones and generally displays her uncanny technical abilities. This is pretty boring for the rest of us to watch. Hurry up, bad guys. Blow her up while leaving a bunch of clues for us to investigate later. At last, the girl on the spider's web belatedly realises these films only work when they bring in Lisbeth's old colleague, Mikhail. Someone's got to be the Dr. Watson character, after all, saying, Lisbeth, that's amazing, and you're crazy, you'll get yourself killed. He also has to chase up the clue, a photo of a bad guy with a spider tattoo. Attract all of his ex-associates. Every single one leads back to one place. All spider tattoos lead to Lisbeth's childhood, it seems, and it looks like the spider people are a bunch of bad guys who answer to Sister Camilla. Camilla has her own reason to want to take down Lisbeth. Lisbeth Salanda. Someone always has to carry the pain. Now it's your turn, Sister. It's her. Been behind all of this. Meanwhile, Mikhail. Well, meanwhile, Mikhail, nothing. He mostly makes token appearances, with his place often taken by a forgettable CIA agent called Needham. With minimal sidekicks, this puts a rather bigger strain on the character of Lisbeth. Not that Claire Foy can't handle it, but you can't make bricks without straw. Oh, those lucky ladies. Why did you help everyone but me? 
Despite the none more noir look, the noisy soundtrack and a bike chase across a frozen river in Stockholm, I found myself lightly dozing off rather more often than I expected during something promoted as a thriller. Whatever she's planning, it's bigger than just you. I know what she's capable of. We're running out of time. Now the world will burn. Make everyone wonder. It was you who lit the match. But a thriller isn't just explosions. You're thinking of a fireworks display. A thriller is people we like under attack, a bit of light and shade in the script, even a couple of jokes to soften us up before the next car chase. The girl in the spider's web is just a bleak tangle defying you to stay awake. Why is it this bit? Why is it spiders don't get stuck in their own webs? We've had four years enduring the centenary of one of the most catastrophic events in human history, the First World War. But finally, we've arrived at Journey's End. Literally, in fact, this week. Journey's End was one of the first plays dealing with the war when it came out in 1928. It was a massive hit and much filmed. I'm afraid I feel exactly the same. They all feel like we do. This, the fifth filmed version of Journey's End from English director Saul Dibb, lightly opens out the action from the claustrophobic trenches of the play. We see the arrival of a new officer, Second Lieutenant Jimmy Raleigh, played by Asa Butterfield. Second Lieutenant Raleigh, sir. What is it you're after? An old friend is out here, Captain Stan. You don't want to join them. They may have a hell of a time of it. That's just what I'm hoping for, sir. I know, I was thinking the same thing. Asa Butterfield, the kid from the boy in the striped pyjamas. How old is he? Ten? But that's the point. Jimmy, like many officers in the war, is barely out of his teens and he has no idea what he's in for. You haven't been in the army five minutes, have you? Our company commander, you know? Hello, Stan. You'll find him changed. He's led this company through all sorts of rotten times. Big strain on the man. He volunteers to join the company of a friend, his sister's fiancé, in fact, Captain Stanhope, played by Sam Claflin. But Stan isn't the man Jimmy remembers. After nearly four years under fire, he's now a shell of the officer he once was, propped up by booze. This dugout smells like a cesspit. Mason! Just bring the soup, sir. Damn the soup, bring some whiskey. Stano. Bloody Captain Hardy. If I see him, I'll give him a piece of my mind. Stano. The action mostly takes place in the officers' quarters. Jimmy Raleigh meets the older Lieutenant Osborne, nicknamed Uncle, played by Paul Bettany as the soul of the group, keeping them all together. By contrast, the shell-shocked Hibbard, clearly in no fit state to be there at all, and the cheerfully working-class Trotter. This is Mr Raleigh. He's just joined the company. <laughs> Dinner is served. What are you tempting us with tonight, Mason? Oh, you got me there, sir. I shouldn't want to commit myself. <laughs> Played novel. 
Oldest member of the group and provider of rare but all too welcome moments of levity is the cook, Private Mason, played by Toby Jones. The action takes place over four days as the company is warned that the Germans are planning something big, a spring offensive. We won't last five minutes if the Germans attack. You'll just stay where you are for as long as you can. When's it expected? Day after tomorrow. The tone of Journey's End isn't quite as cynical as that of many subsequent World War I dramas. Here, not every superior officer is arrogant, selfish and criminally stupid. Just many of them as they send their men on often suicidal missions. Green one's business as usual. Red one's signal an alarm. I set the wrong one off once. Nearly cost us the war. The fact is, after four years under fire, many of the shattered soldiers on both sides are praying to be wounded. Not fatally, just bad enough to be sent home. A blighty one, as they were called. Rotten, isn't it? Every little noise up there makes me feel sick. Suppose you are knocked down. You wouldn't have to bear this hell anymore. But they're also balancing their permanent state of terror with what they're told is their duty and how they want to think of themselves. The presence of Jimmy Rowley is a constant reminder to Stanhope of the girl waiting for him at home. He used to come and stay with me and my sister Margaret in the holidays. She is beautiful. Is she waiting for you? I don't want to see how shot I am. Journey's End made a huge impact when it was seen in the 20s, the first time something like the reality of the war had been shown so starkly. Even today, it's still capable of shocking us. All these youngsters do not realise how unlucky they are. What does it matter? They all feel like we do. The German Spring Offensive of 1918 took a few hundred metres of territory at the cost of hundreds of thousands of lives. A hundred days later, they were driven back at the cost of even more. Four months later, the war was over. You look at those bald statistics and wonder why anyone called this a victory. This waiting is like being summoned to the headmaster. They've sent us here to die. Journey's End, by allowing half a dozen voices to be heard, offers, if not an explanation, then at least an illustration. The trouble is, the people who ought to see it, now as then, never will. And on this obvious example of, I'm sorry to say, male energy, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies, same time next week.